Well, I have been a dad uh, for about seven years, uh, actually right at seven and a half, not that I'm counting or anything, but I think being a dad is one of the greatest gigs in all the world. I just, I just love being a dad. And there's funny moments, there are embarrassing moments, there, there's moments where you don't feel too good about yourself. Uh, there's moments where you don't feel like you're doing so great of a job. And then there's moments where you just look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm killing it. This is incredible. No, maybe not. Uh, we don't have those moments very much as parents, do we? But uh, I've been a dad for about seven years. And, and because I have uh, very, um, you know, my, my skills of being able to deduce and uh, to being able to observe things, they're, they're just really well developed. And, and I've noticed something as a dad about kids, my kids and, and, and your kids alike, probably something that you've not been able to pick up on because you're you and I'm me. But because I'm me, I have picked up on this because it is a keen observation uh, that I've made about kids. And this is what I've discovered. And perhaps this is the first time you'll ever hear something like this. Uh, but kids don't like to be told no. Have you noticed that? I mean, kids don't like to be told no. And, and it's almost as if, you know, I don't want to blame it on God or anything, but it, it's almost as if it's wired into them. Like from the very beginning, when they're old enough to have like any kind of meaningful conversation or know what's going on around them, it, it's like they were wired not to like the word no. Matter of fact, they have physical reactions to the word no. They ask you something, you say no, they lose the ability to hold their head up. <sighs> you know, their, their facial muscles constrict. <sighs> You know, it really affects their respiration, <sighs> right? I mean, their whole body's affected by no. It's really quite crazy to watch, but I've noticed this as a dad, you know, hey, can we play video games? No. Hey, can we buy that toy? No. Can we go get ice cream? No. Can I pee on my brother? No, right? It's the neighbor's family, right? And they just don't like the word no. And so I've noticed this as a dad, but I am also a pastor, which makes me a professional Christian. And uh, as a pastor, I have also honed my skills of observation and deduction. And I have noticed something about adults as a pastor. I've been a pastor for 12 years. Uh, this is my first church that I've pastored. I hope it's my last, but I've been here for over 12 years. And so as a lead pastor for 12 years, I have, I've discovered something about you. You probably don't even know about yourself. I've discovered something about your peers that, that are around you this morning, complete strangers. You don't even know who they are, but I'm going to tell you something really important about them. Adults don't like to be told no. I've noticed this as a pastor. Can we enter in the auditorium right now? No. Can I sit over there behind the bear? No. Can I let my baby cry the entire service without doing anything about it? No. Can I bring my dog or cat into worship? No. And why would you want, you know, I mean, no. And, and, and adults don't like to be told no. It, it's just something that we were born into, this, this race of ours where we're young and now that we're older, we just don't like to be told no. But I have a question. Do you know what's worse than being told no? Do you know what's worse than being told no? Being told no without an explanation attached. Now I can remember, and you can remember this, when I was a kid, specifically when I was a teenager, I, I would have an agenda and there was something that I wanted to do. There were friends I wanted to hang out with. There was a place that I wanted to go. Uh, you know, there was just something that, that I needed my parents to sign off on. And so what I would do, you know, I, I would go as a teenager who knew almost everything, uh, you know, as they all are, as a teenager who knew almost everything, I went and I thought about my approach because approach is everything. And, and, and 
and I crafted my question. I crafted my question in such a, just such an amazing way that it answered what I thought they would have questions about and, and any concern as the good parent that they were. I would answer those questions in my question. And so I would go and I would work with the words and play with the phrases and, and then I would work on being sweet but not too sweet because that's suspicious. And, and so, you know, you would work on your tone, you'd work on everything. And then, and then I, would, I would walk up to my mother and my father and, and I would catch them in a moment when they were seemingly distracted. Mom's washing dishes, dad's working on something. When, when they're not paying a whole lot of attention to anything going on around them. And I go up and I say, I need to ask you a question, okay? And I would go into this well-rehearsed question. And at the end of the question that I'm so proud of, that I've worked on so much, it, it's as though my, my parents, you know, whether they were together or apart in moments like this, they both did the same thing. They would just momentarily pause what they were doing and look at me and say, no. No remorse, no empathy, and very little facial expression. And then they would go on about what they were doing. And they would, no. Can I go? And I, no. Well, would you? No. And so, you know, and that was just, that was bad enough. But the part that was, was the worst part of all was there was no explanation. And so there I am, I have worked on this, my friends are all going, I need to be there, it's the end of life if I'm not there. And then I'm sitting there and I'm irritated, I'm mad, I'm disappointed because they say no. And the first thing that comes out of my mouth was the first thing that probably came out of your mouth. But why? But why? But why? Because I want to talk about this. I, I, I want to debate, I, not so much debate, but I, I want to talk about this. Let's talk about this because I want to know your reasoning. I want to know your reasons because that was an awfully quick response. You could not have logically considered my request. You just know. And so I would say, why? But why? Tell me why. I want to know why you answered so quickly and so definitively. Why? And then, my parents would reach into their parental bag of one saying nuggets. <laughs> Sayings that only parents know that I believe once upon a time was written high top the mountain, etched in stone. They would stop what they were doing and just look at me matter of factly and say, because I said so. Yeah, you had that parent too. Mom, dad, I really need to, I want to go and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. and It's going to be safe. And there's all kinds of chaperones there and there's no alcohol and there's nothing there. And I'm going to go and there's a Bible study at the end of it all. So, hey, <laughs> can I go? No. But why? Because I said so. <laughs> How magical is that? <laughs> Feeling all warm and fuzzy inside. Oh, because you, dumb me. I didn't know that that's what just happened. Right? I mean, and, and, and it was frustrating. It was irritating. And, and then from time to time when they were tired of saying, because I said so, they would, they would this, the, the, this one was the worst one of all. This was like the two-word dagger. Just because. <laughs> Listen, I'm a parent now. I know sometimes we do things just to test our children. And just because is a test. It is a test we received. It's a test you swear up and down you're not going to do, but you're going to do it. If you've not already done it. Just because. Just because why? Just because I said so. Well, why did you say so? Just because. Well, why? Just because I said so. Ah! So, and it was so frustrating and it was so terrible and no was bad enough, but we didn't get an explanation and that made it the worst thing of all. 
Now, we, we've kind of looked at this as psychologists and adults about what parents can do to their children sometimes. And, and we like to think we're infallible, but, but we, don't, we don't get a pass on that. But here, here's what we know about that kind of thing. That not only happens in childhood, but it also happens throughout the rest of our lives. Being told a what without being told a why erodes trust and fuels suspicion. Now they tell parents not to do that, right? We still do it though. You know, that's what we do. Uh, we're parents. We don't listen to anybody. That's why we're a parent now. So we don't have to listen to anybody. We make other people listen to us, right? We had some kids. Now we don't have to mow the grass. We don't have to go get the remote when we can't find it. You know, all the cool things that kids brings to a household. You know, we don't have to do any of those silly things anymore because we got little bitty things running around the house that can do it for us. But, but as a human being, whenever we're told a what without being told a what, it erodes trust and fuels suspicion. It does, because you're left to fill in the blanks of why. You said no, and, and now you won't really tell me a legitimate why, so I am left to believe you're against me. You hate me. You don't care about my happiness, do you, Dad? You know, all those things. It, you know, it erodes trust and fuels suspicion. Now, this is true in our adult lives as well. You walk into your office this week, you're late. Your, your boss comes up to you and says, why were you late? I want you to try this just because, <laughs> just because. You know what's gonna happen in that moment? Trust will be eroded and suspicion will be fueled. You walk in as a parent to your child's bedroom and they're, they're on the bed and, and they're just crying. They're just crying and you say, why are you crying? What's wrong? Why are you crying? I just am, just because. And now you don't have a clue what's going on so you just, you read into the situation. And you bring conjecture, and it's like, did they get hurt today at school? Are they sick? What happened? What's going on? Because this is what happens to all of us when we're told a what without being told a why. It erodes trust and fuels suspicion because we don't really know the why. And so you say, why in the world are you telling us this? Because what happened in our childhood and what's happened even into adulthood with things that are not really significant this same thing has happened to us in a very significant area of life, at least for a lot of us. This thing happened as it relates to our faith. A very similar thing happened to many of us as it relates to our faith. Now, let me ask you a question. We're all going to vote on this. Uh, let me ask this. How many of you, at least once upon a time growing up through childhood, maybe you went every week, maybe once a month, uh, maybe a couple of times a year, but somewhere through childhood and your teenage years, you were exposed to faith in the local church. You, you, know, you went there, you know. So that, that's, that's most of us, the majority of us. A uh, few of us, that's not our story, and, and that's cool too. But for many of us, somewhere along the way, we were exposed to some level of faith and some level of church. And you know, we went to Sunday school and sat in Sunday school class, and then we went up to big church maybe, and we listened to some sermons, and we sang some songs, and, and maybe we went to VBS once a year. Uh, maybe our, our parents even sent us to Christian school. And so, you know, on some level, wherever that level is, it may be a, a large level, small level, we were exposed to faith, and we were exposed to a church once upon a time. And, and for some of us, uh, we grew up in two-parent homes. Mom and dad were both there, and, and, and our parents led the charge together. And, and that was kind of my story. They made me go to church week in and week out. Uh, for some, it was one-parent home, and one parent led the charge, and one parent really didn't seem to matter or didn't really seem to care about you know faith, and faith didn't really matter to them. And, and, and maybe one parent stayed home, and one parent took you. Or maybe it was the grandparents or, or someone in your family or someone close to your family. They would pick you up, and they 
would expose you to faith and they would expose you to the local church. And so we were told, those of us exposed to faith and the local church at some point in life, and this is why this is important. We were told once upon a time by people that we love and trust what to believe. We were told once upon a time, you were told once upon a time, as a child, maybe as a teenager, you were told once upon a time by someone you loved and trusted what you were supposed to believe. That person you loved, that person you trusted, they sent you to a Sunday school room or they put you in the pew beside of them or perhaps directly, they told you what you were supposed to believe, what was right and what was wrong, what you were supposed to believe and what you were not supposed to believe. That's part of your story and that's part of mine and perhaps the majority of us. And that, when we were told what to believe by people that we loved and trusted, it it became the beginning of our story of borrowed beliefs and coached convictions. That's where it started. Someone told you what you were supposed to believe. It wasn't your belief. It was borrowed. It was inherited. How were you supposed to know at that age? I mean, even, even, you know, as a teenager, you hadn't read very much. You hadn't been exposed to very much back in those days. It wasn't Google. And and it was just borrowed belief. Someone that you loved and trusted said, believe this, don't believe that. And you were like, okay, that's what I believe. It was a borrowed belief. It really wasn't yours. It was someone else's and you just kind of took it for yourself. It was coached convictions. These, these weren't convictions that you had arrived at because of investigation or because you read something or because you experienced much. You hadn't experienced much in life. So these were just convictions that someone else coached you to have. And you felt like that was something wrong that you shouldn't do and that was okay for you to do. And so these convictions were coached and these beliefs were borrowed. Once upon a time, once upon a time, you sat in a room or you sat in a church and someone told you what to believe about the beginning of the world. They told you what you were supposed to believe about the beginning of the world, but in those conversations at church, no one ever talked about dinosaurs. No one ever talked about light years and how it relates to the age of the universe. Now, you would go to church and hear about the beginning of the world and hear about a talking snake and hear about your first parents, Adam and Eve, and then you would go to school and then you would hear about dinosaurs and the fossil record and the age of the universe versus light years and how we perceive light from where it is, distant in the universe and all of those things. And the things you were talking about at school were not the things you were talking about at church and the things that people talked about at church, they seemed to leave a whole lot out that you were getting elsewhere, but you were being told what to believe and what not to believe about the beginning of the world, even though you weren't talking about it all. Once upon a time, you were told and I was told what was right and what was wrong. But no one told you in that conversation that there's gonna be verses in the New Testament that we pay attention to and verses in the New Testament that we don't pay attention to. No one sat down and said, okay, here's what's right and here's what's wrong, but here's what you need to know. There's going to be certain verses that we take and we're going to say, hey, once upon a time in that city when Paul wrote that letter to Timothy, that was a cultural consideration. And so don't pay any attention to what he says. But over here, when Paul wrote a letter to another group of Christians in a particular city, listen to that all the time. It's like, here's right and wrong, but we're not going to tell you how in the world we came to the conclusion of what was right and what was wrong. They told us what to believe about life and death and heaven and hell and life after death. They told us that the world was bad, but God was good and that was all supposed to be okay and never bother us and never cause us to think or wonder. They told us, this is amazing. They told us that every word of the Bible was true, though we knew, or at least we strongly suspected that they had not read every word of the Bible themselves. (laughs) How can you believe 
How can anyone believe that a book is completely true if they've not read the complete book? How does that happen and what kind of person does that? But yet, that's what happened to most of us. We were told to take the Bible to be literal. That the Bible is literally true and then they would say, except for when it's not. You know, the dinosaurs and the seven horns and the monsters and the heads, just pay no attention to that. If you're going to read the Bible, don't start in Genesis, don't start, you know, don't start at the end, start, you know, here. And, and, and they would tell us, take it literal except for when you don't take it literal. How do I know when I'm supposed to take it literal or not? They would tell us that the text, the biblical text, all the biblical text was inspired and infallible but they never bothered to tell us that their interpretation about the inerrant, infallible text was very much not inspired and very much perhaps fallible. And so we grew up and we saw the text of the Bible and we heard the interpretation of said text of the Bible and and we thought they were one and the same, that the interpretation was the inspired, infallible part. But then we grew up and we learned that there is an interpretation and lo and behold, there are people who don't see it the way we see it. Where did those people come from? Well, obviously they're wrong. (laughs) And obviously something's wrong with them. We were told what to believe once upon a time by people we loved and trusted, who once upon a time were told by people they loved and trusted, who once upon a time was told by people they loved and trusted what they were to believe. Borrowed beliefs coached convictions. We were told in a roundabout way, sometimes overtly, sometimes covertly, that that we should never question it. We should just go with it. But here's the thing I wanna say to you and here's what I wanna say to me and here's what I wanna say to the students in the room and people watching online. None of us should be comfortable with borrowed belief. None of us should be okay and comfortable with coached convictions. There's so many voices that we can listen to and we can find a voice to tell us what we wanna hear. That's easy enough and that's for another day and perhaps we'll talk about that later on in the series. But you should not be content with borrowed belief and coached convictions. I've, I've told our church since I started here, please God, do not believe anything just because I tell you. Google's your friend, encyclopedias, textbooks, all those things are great, but don't believe it just because I tell you But that's kind of the world we grew up in, most of us. We just borrowed it. It was a little bit coerced, a little bit coached. Then some of us, not all of us, some of us, we got to the point we did something we we didn't know that we weren't supposed to do exactly. We started asking questions. And we started asking big questions and we would ask mom and dad, well, mom and dad, why? Why this? I I know what, but, but why? Well, ask your Sunday school teacher. Okay, go to church and ask your Sunday school teacher, hey, why this? You need to ask your parents. Well, they told me to ask you. Okay, well, then you need to ask the preacher. Okay, preacher, why this? I've been thinking about this. I heard this. Why this? Well, if you talk to your parents about it, if you talk to your Sunday school teacher about it, you need to talk to God about it. I have. I don't feel like he's listening. I don't think he knows the answer. He's not, he's not responding, right? We, we asked some questions and here's what happened, seriously, for some. And if this isn't your story, let me tell you why this is important to you. If you have children or grandchildren, 
or you have folks that you're investing in the next generation, you should care about this because this is touching your life in some way. Perhaps it's your kids asking the questions. Perhaps it's your grandchildren asking these questions and they've just not verbalized them yet. This is why this is important. Because some of us, we asked these questions and we got childlike answers to very important questions. They were a bit ridiculous sometimes, the answers we got. Sometimes they were a bit subjective and emotional. And sometimes it was just like our parents, wasn't it? Why do we believe that? We just do. Well, thank you. I feel much better. Or how about this? Why do we believe this? Because it's, the Bible says so. It's in the Bible. Where? Mm, somewhere. Right? Or some of you, you ask once upon a time, why do we believe that? We're Catholic. That's what we do. We're Baptist. That's, that's what we do. We're Presbyterian. That's, that's what we do. Many of us, many of us, were presented with an idea of faith that was ultimately all about being correct and being certain. Here's what to believe, this is right, here's what's not to be believed because it's wrong. So in our minds and in a lot of people's minds, and maybe yours still today, you think of faith as a matter of being right, about coming down on the right side of an argument, the right side of an issue. And you think of faith as about being correct. And if someone is incorrect, then there's something wrong with their faith. Their faith isn't whole, their faith isn't matured, their faith isn't healthy. You think of it as being certain that you're absolutely 100% bought into what you say you believe, even though you've really never considered it, because somewhere along the way, religious systems in your life did what religious systems were intended to do. Religious systems and churches, if we allow ourselves to be, we can be self-serving. We can be self-serving in the fact that we don't want you to consider what you believe because you may choose not to be among us anymore. You may choose not to fall in line and believe anymore what we think you should believe, what is right and what is correct. Many of us, many of us have thought about faith in terms of right and wrong and being really certain because religious systems did what religious systems are in intended to do. It blocked you from asking questions. It blocked you from wondering about things. And because it blocked you from questioning and wondering, it also blocked you from growing, growing your faith. Here's what religious systems do. Religious systems and sometimes churches help you and help me create mental fortresses. Mental fortresses where we build our walls high, unassailable walls, where we don't entertain anybody else's ideas, anybody else's point of view. We won't listen to them. We won't invite them. We won't read their books. We won't listen to their podcasts because we have a fortress and inside our fortress, we have correct beliefs and we have certain beliefs and we don't have time to let somebody else perhaps challenge our correctness or challenge our certainty about it. And most of us have settled for believing exactly what makes sense to us and what makes us feel good. How much of what you believe doesn't make you feel good and makes you highly uncomfortable? Probably not a lot because that's not how we are wired. And so as church people, other people in our lives didn't believe what we believe was correct and they weren't certain about what we were certain about. So you know what we deduced? without even having a conversation. You're wrong. I'm right, 
I know I'm right. And there's something wrong with you. So we were led to believe that we should never question our faith. And that's how many of the churches programmed us to think growing up, that we should never question what we say is true. And I get it because faith is a big deal. Our faith helps us make sense of the world. We filter everything through it. It's how we see. It's how we hear. It's how we experience life around us. We all love familiar answers. We love the familiar answers that we started hearing from our childhood, from the people that we loved and trusted most. We love those familiar answers. You take away those familiar answers to us, and it's, it's unsettling. It's terrifying to lose familiar answers to big questions that help us make sense of life. We all want very clean beliefs in a very messy world. That's what we want. But life isn't like that, and we want it to be clean, and we want it to all make sense, and we want to be certain, and we want to be correct. And to question our beliefs would be an indication of doubt. And most of you and me, to a large degree, we were trained to think doubt was bad. This certain and this correct version of faith that most of us were presented with had no room for doubt. And to question meant that you were doubting and you didn't believe right. And it's never popular to be amongst a crowd who believes one thing and to be the person who's not so sure that you believe what everybody else believes. And so we learned to resist doubt. And in resisting doubt, we gave up the ability to ask great questions, have deep conversations, be curious, read, and pursue truth. And so we've accepted lousy answers to important questions. That's what church people have done. That's what a lot of parents have done. Lousy answers to big questions. Doubt is a big deal because it can fuel investigation. It can create someone to, to, to begin to hunger after truth in a way that nothing else can. And since when are Christians afraid of truth? Why are we afraid that someone would pursue truth? Because we believe as Christians that truth ends and begins with Jesus. So why are we intimidated by truth? So here's what I want to say to us here. If you're a guest of ours, it's not a sermon today. It's kind of launching us into what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. But, but here, here's what I want us to know to get us to talk about what we need to talk about for the next few weeks. Don't doubt the benefit of doubt. Don't doubt the benefit of doubt. Let's all just say that out loud together. Don't doubt the benefit of doubt. Don't you do it. Don't fall for it. Ask questions. You know what doubt will do? Even if you're a believer or non-believer, you shouldn't give up doubt. If you believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, don't give up doubt. If you're not a follower of Jesus, not a believer in Jesus, don't give up doubt. Here's what doubt will do. It will keep you open to what you think is true may not be true. And that cuts both ways. And it keeps you open to what you think isn't true may be true. Doubt is kind of neutral. It's what we do with it. It's how we leverage it. You can be a theist and have doubt and become an atheist, or many atheists have had doubt and become a theist. So it goes both ways. Doubt is not the enemy. We're not trying to extinguish doubt. Doubt is about pursuing truth, and Christians are very much pro-truth. Jesus said that truth was life, and it was light. So, so here's, here's, here's my deal. Doubt keeps us open to at least the possibility that we could be wrong about something we believe. So it's okay to doubt faith. And it's okay to doubt doubt. 
C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist turned theist who became a follower of Jesus, who's perhaps one of the most influential Christians uh, of you know, the last century for sure, but, but incredible. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. In other words, I vacillate between the two. When I was a believer, I doubted about maybe the unbeliever's right. When I was an unbeliever, I doubted that maybe the believer was right. So doubt is present. You can't, you can't deal, deal it away. You can't rebuke it away. You can't pray it away. Doubt is something you gotta learn to leverage and follow the truth wherever the truth may take you. But not everybody's open to following the truth wherever the truth may take them. Not everybody's into that. We have our mental fortresses, both as believers and non-believers. So here, here's a definition of faith I think you should hold on to. Faith is neither the presence of certainty nor the absence of doubt. If you're looking to be completely certain and that's your idea of faith, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. If you're looking to have such belief that you never have doubt, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. If you don't pay attention to your doubts and if I don't pay attention to my doubts, faith can collapse in a moment under the weight of real life. And if you don't learn to act on your doubt, that is to pursue truth, investigate, be curious, ask questions, have conversations, engage with those who see it and believe it differently than you. If, if you can't do those things, then you're not leveraging doubt appropriately. So here, here's my question. When is the last time you seriously considered that what you believe isn't correct? When's the last time you believed that there's things you believe that you could be wrong about? When's the last time you seriously consider that, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer? When is the last time you seriously question what you believe and why you believe it? Have you settled for borrowed belief and coached convictions? Have you just taken this on from somebody else that you loved and trusted, but it's really not yours? And you've got, you know, we could have called this series not only questions that Christians don't want to answer, but we could have called it, you know, questions that Christians don't want to ask. Ask ourselves, ask someone else. This cuts both ways. This is not about Christians learning to how to have a dialogue about some questions that our children and grandchildren and the culture is asking. This is about, if we ever stop long enough to think, we have these doubts and have these momentary questions that sometimes we just push down and we don't deal with. And we give up the opportunity to strengthen our faith. When's the last time you considered what you believe could not be entirely correct? Did you know, did you know that you can have great faith and doubt? You can have great faith and doubt. There was a guy in the New Testament, he was the cousin of Jesus named John the, Bab, the Baptizer, right? Many people call him John the Baptist. But, but John the Baptizer was the cousin of Jesus. He was the one who like announced Jesus he preached messages on Jesus, told people to follow Jesus, told people that he was the Messiah, the promised one, you know, all of that. Look, behold the Lamb of God. That was that guy, John the Baptist. He baptized, baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. I mean, it was incredible. John, though, the cousin of Jesus, the one who announced Jesus to the world, who baptized Jesus, life got heavy for him. He got in prison. He was discouraged. No one had really come to see him. Specifically, Jesus had never really come to see him. And they were cousins. They were friends. Jesus had a lot you know, of gratitude for John because of John kind of saying, hey, here's this guy. You follow him. Don't follow me anymore. Follow him. And John was in prison. And you know what John did while he was in prison? He doubted. He doubted every sermon he had ever preached. Now, think about that. 
Think about how you would feel about me or some other pastor or some other Christian that perhaps you love, maybe respect. Imagine if you found out that they were doubting the veracity of every sermon they'd ever preached. And that's where John was. He, he, he questioned every sermon he ever preached. He, he questioned who Jesus was. He, he questioned whether he got it all wrong. He questioned his interpretation of the text and what he thought he understood about. He, 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 he questioned it all. He called a couple of friends to him. He said, I want you to go find Jesus and here's what I want you to ask Jesus. Are you the one? Or should I look for another? And they said, I imagine they said, uh, what do you mean? Is he the one? You told us he was the one. <laughs> yeah, but are you not sure anymore? No, I'm not sure anymore. I'm not sure Jesus is who I thought Jesus was. I, I'm not so convinced anymore. And the weight of life and the emotional toil of his circumstance, and there was a whole bunch of stuff going on there John just said, I'm not sure if I believe anymore. And so they went to find Jesus. And they said, Jesus, John sent us to you to say, are you the one or should we look for another? And here's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't rebuke John. He didn't condemn John. You know what he did? He responded to his question. And he said, guys, I want you to go tell John what you've seen and heard. In other words, I want you to take evidence back to him. I want you to give him a reason to keep believing. I want you to help him understand that faith is taking a step forward, but it's not taking a step forward blindly or into complete darkness. It's taking a step forward with good reason. So he gave him evidence and sent him back to John. And then when those guys walked off, here, here's the amazing part of this story. Here's what Jesus said about John when those two guys walked off. There's none greater born of a woman than John the baptizer. Somebody who questioned everything. When the going got tough, he was on his way out the back door. When the going got tough, he questioned everything he thought he ever knew. But let me tell you the great thing about John. He did it out loud. He did it out loud and he just didn't wrestle with it internally. But he asked a question he was willing, as difficult and as long distance as it was, to have as much of a conversation about it, a give and take of information. That's what he did. And Jesus said, there's none greater born of woman than John, even though he was doubting it all. See, belief is what I believe. Belief is not faith. Belief is about what I believe, but faith is about who I trust. Belief is what moves us towards faith. You can believe and not have faith. You can believe what's right and not have faith. James, they have brother Jesus, he'll talk about faith and say even demons believe, but they don't have faith. Belief is about what I believe, but faith is about who I trust and belief is intended to move us towards trust, to move us towards belief. And that's what doubt can do. That's what asking questions can do. It can move you in the direction of truth. And we see this in the most famous doubter of all in the New Testament, one of the original 12 followers of Jesus, a guy whose doubt became part of his name, Doubting Thomas, who, who heard everything Jesus said, who watched Jesus' miracles, had a front row seat to Jesus. He was the most famous doubter of all. He was a skeptic, but, but, but here's where we're gonna land the plane today because I want you to know that it's okay to question 
And it's okay to question it out loud. And so Thomas and John, they remind us that you can be a person of faith and wrestle with doubt. You can be a person of faith and ask really difficult questions and, and what can be intimidating questions. And so we pick up Thomas's story at the end of the Gospel of John. John was one of the followers of Jesus who wrote one of the biographies of Jesus, the Gospel of John. And after he's told us about the death of Jesus and after he's told us about the burial of Jesus, this is where we pick up the story of Thomas and Jesus and the doubt that he leveraged to move further into belief and ultimately into faith. Here's what it says. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, and this is the first day of the week that Jesus was raised from the dead, the very first Easter, earlier that day, all right, earlier this day, the women had gone to the tomb. They'd gone to anoint the body of Jesus because that's just what you did back then. They went there, the stone was rolled away, the body of Jesus was missing. There was an angel there who said, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen. So they run back to the other disciples and they say, oh my goodness, Jesus is missing. Angel says he's raised. And the men were like, silly women, silly women, what's going on? And so Peter and John, Peter and John, you know, two of the other 12, Peter and John, they run to the tomb. And we're told in the other narratives about the resurrection that John walked into the tomb, he looked around, and he believed. Because in that moment, I suppose that the things that Jesus had said before began to click. And he was like, oh, when Jesus said that, this is what he was talking about. Tear down this temple, raise it again in three days. Oh, it's been three days. And so it says John believed, but Peter... Because faith is so wrapped up with our emotions and our psychological health, and, and it's just so wrapped into who we are. Peter, who was dealing with the guilt of denying Jesus three times, he wasn't so sure. So he didn't believe in that moment. So you, you've got both guys looking at an empty tomb. One believes, one's not so sure, right? He's doubting, but Peter's not the point of this story. So they go back and they begin to tell everybody else, oh my goodness, the women here, we went down there and there's no body. We didn't see an angel, you know, and all this, but, but here's what happened. So later that evening, later that evening, that's when this is talking about, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders because none of Jesus' followers were expecting a resurrection. They were all afraid that they might be next. It says that Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to the disciples in the room, and he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they talked to me, tell me this word, saw. When they saw the Lord, right? So Jesus, Jesus understands what he's asking these fellows and these ladies to believe. I mean, nobody was expecting a resurrection. Nobody was accustomed to, to seeing something quite like this. And, and they were so in shock about his death. It was so horrific. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus he knows they're kind of doubting this and they're skeptical about this. And it's like, who would believe this? He opens up his hands and says, look, guys. And he opens up his side because he knows this is a tall ticket to believe. He knows that this is a difficult thing to grasp onto. And so he says, hey, guys, let me give you some reasons to believe. He says, so they saw the Lord. And I imagine if you'd been there and I'd been there, I would have done the same thing. You know, I would have just like, Jesus, can I poke? Can I poke? that hurt? <laughs> well, anyway, I, I, I think about this and, and, and you know, it's like, Jesus, you know, wow, that's real. You know, I, I touched him. Did you, did you just, yeah, this is Jesus. And so they, they saw the Lord. This was not about what they believed. This is, this is in this moment, what they saw. And so he provided them evidence in order to help them believe, in order to get them to trust. 
So faith, if you think that faith is a cop-out and you think that faith is irrational, it's not logical, and it's not based on evaluating evidence and, and all that type of thing, if that's what you think faith is, and then you're sorely you know, misunderstanding the nature of faith because faith from the very beginning has been about evaluating the evidence and the proof that you have in front of you and responding accordingly. That's what it's always been about. And so now they are believing because they have reasons to believe. So it goes on. This is where John has been taking us in the story. He says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, was one of the 12. He was not with the disciples. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he missed all this party. He didn't get to see the hands, didn't get to see, you know, open up his side. He didn't get to see any of that. I don't know where he was. Maybe he was out grieving. Maybe he was out, you know, I don't know. We just were not told, but he wasn't there. He, he was absent. So Thomas misses out on all of this. He didn't see what they saw. He didn't hear what they heard, and he didn't know what they knew. He just hasn't been there yet. So it goes on. It says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. These Jesus followers are doing exactly what you'd expect Jesus followers to do. They told their friend. And in this moment, don't miss this, Thomas is in the place that you were as a child, maybe as a teenager, maybe as a young adult. Thomas in this moment is being told what to believe by people he loved and trusted. These men, these women, he loved them, he trusted them, he'd been with them for three years, and they are saying, Thomas, oh my goodness, what were you doing? Never mind, we don't care. Let us tell you what happened. We saw him, we touched him. We had a conversation with him. It was incredible. He's alive, and they could see it in, in his eyes that he didn't believe that there was a disconnect, and he, he, he had doubt on his face, and, and perhaps he said some things to them, but they were like, no, listen, why would we lie to you? Come on. This is what happened. The women went, and then they came, and Peter and John, no, 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 no. Don't you believe us? And so in this moment, he could borrow belief if he wanted to. In this moment, he could have had coached convictions if he wanted to. That would have been the easy thing to do. Perhaps even some would say the understandable thing to do. The people that he loved and trusted most were telling him what to believe, but it didn't click for him. He still had questions because he had doubts. Now, can you imagine, I mean, really, I mean, can you imagine being some of the men and the women that were telling him about this, but he just refused to believe? I mean, it would have probably offended you a little bit. Don't you believe me? No, not really. You think we're crazy? Do you think, you think you're smarter than we are? You know, I mean, can you imagine kind of the tension that must have existed when, when one of your friends, you're telling your friends, this is absolutely, you know, Thomas. Hey, we swear. Oh, can we swear we're Jewish? Hey, can we swear? We swear. We swear we saw this. You don't believe. What? I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, this is real life. I mean, this is, these are people in relationship with each other. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I see what you saw, heard what you heard, and get to know what you know, and I put my hands into his side, I will not believe. I cannot, I will not. And so he doubts. But doubt didn't cause him to walk away. He doubted. And he was still investigating, he was still considering, he was still questioning, he was still seeking evidence to believe what he was being told that he should believe. He didn't want borrowed belief, 
He wanted it to be personal. He wanted more evidence. Okay? So a week later, a week later, think about that. A whole week of these types of conversation going on. And I love this. A week later, the disciples, his disciples, were in the house again. And Thomas, don't miss this. I'm telling you, this week I've not been able to stop thinking about this. And Thomas was with them. Thomas, an unbeliever and a doubter. And who is he with? Believers. Here's a man who did not believe, but the one place that he was still comfortable was with those who did believe. And even though Thomas didn't know for sure if he could believe what they were saying, he decided to be with them. Even though he didn't believe, he felt as though he belonged. He did not walk away to his credit. He just didn't say, hey, I don't believe that, so that, that, they're not for me. That's not my people anymore, so I'm just going to walk away. To his credit, he didn't walk away. And to their credit, they did not ask him to walk away. They did not say, well, you're not of us. You don't believe what we believe. You don't listen to what we listen. You ask these questions. You have these doubts. Then you're best suited by going somewhere else. He didn't step away. They didn't ask him to step away. He was with them. A believer... An unbeliever side by side. Believers with an unbeliever in the same place. Still in relationship, still in fellowship. You know why this is such a big deal? Because this is the way the church was intended to be. I hope, I hope if nothing else, that our church will always be a place, even if you don't believe, you still feel comfortable among those of us who do believe. And even when you doubt, and even when you have questions, and even when you don't take our word for it, that the one place you want to be is with us. And the one place that we want to be is with you. Because that's been the way it's been since the very beginning. Somewhere along the way, church became for believers. But it's for all of us. And it said Jesus came, and he stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, because Thomas was the reason he came, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. In other words, a better translation, stop not believing and believe. Jesus met him right in the headwinds of his own doubt. Stop not believing and believe. And in that moment, Thomas took a step and he said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus wraps it all up and this is where we end it. Then Jesus said to him, because you've seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you're part of a special generation of people who are gonna have a front row seat to this. You're an eyewitness, Thomas. Those who come after you are like the jury and they're gonna listen to the eyewitness the jury is not the eyewitness. The jury listens to the eyewitness and then makes a decision based on proof, based on evidence, based on what's logical, what's rational. Thomas, you're blessed to be part of this first generation, but so are those who come after you. And it reminds us that faith is belief in what is unseen, but not unfounded. One of Thomas's friends, Peter, who believed, trusted, 
became the leader of the New Testament church. He would write a letter to Christians years later after all this happened. Christians that were living in a culture where it was difficult to believe and to convince people to believe. This is what Peter, perhaps with a little bit of Thomas' story in his mind, this is what he wrote years later. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason, the why for what you believe, for the hope that you have personal, not borrowed, not coached. And when you do this, do this with gentleness and respect. Don't insult each other. Ask great questions, have great dialogue because this is how truth is obtained. And you know what? This church is a safe place to doubt. It's a safe place to ask questions. And sometimes there isn't a good answer. Sometimes there's not an emotionally satisfying answer. Sometimes there's an answer, but we just don't know it yet. Sometimes there's not a dogmatic answer. But you know what? Sometimes we will only get answers we have been looking for when we dare to ask the questions we've been afraid of. And next week, we're gonna talk about the why of God's existence and why we even think that somewhere there is something outside of us and what reasons do we have to believe such a thing? So don't miss next week. Father, I pray that you let us know that it's okay to doubt. It's okay to ask questions. And I pray that we'll keep pursuing truth, whether we call ourselves believers or non-believers, and that we always realize that there's always room for all of us here every Sunday we meet. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Hey, thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week for part two. Happy New Year. Have a safe week.